Welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm Mark Hannaford, the founder of World Extreme Medicine. If you're a doctor, nurse, or paramedic, or indeed any healthcare professional with a curious and adventurous mind, then this is certainly the podcast for you. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Mike Barrett, one of NASA's most senior medical advisors and also an astronaut himself, talking about the historic occasion of the first American astronauts leaving American soil to get to the International Space Station aboard the Dragon capsule built by SpaceX. So, Mike, it's absolutely, in fact, we're honoured to have you join us today because I imagine in the lead up to the launch on the 27th, you're, you're absolutely manic. So thank you for giving us the, your, your time today. It's brilliant to have you here with us. Well, my pleasure to talk to you again, Mark. And, and uh, manic is right, but it's manic in a good way for a very good reason. And Mike, and lots of people will know who you are, but if you could just quickly introduce yourself, that would be really, really useful. Well, sure. Uh, Michael Barrett, I'm a NASA astronaut physician. I've uh, been at NASA for almost 30 years now, and I've been in the astronaut office for the last 20 years, which is also hard for me to believe. And uh, my specialty is space medicine. I've been lucky enough to fly into space twice myself, and I work very heavily in the space life sciences and, and the human flight communities. And uh, my role here recently with the commercial crew world in these last few years has been everything dealing with human factors or, or medical issues with the new spacecraft. So that includes uh, the suits, the seats, atmosphere, environmental control, life support, acceleration profiles, toxicity, and of course the medical care that we do. And uh, the interesting thing is we're building three spaceships at the same time right now between the SpaceX Dragon, the Boeing Starliner, and, and the Orion spacecraft. So it's, it's a very busy and very exciting time. It's an incredibly historic time, and it's also um, not not made easier by the the COVID pandemic. Um, how are you? How on earth are you dealing with with all of that work, all of that history you're about to make, and also the fact you've got a global pandemic? Yeah, boy, that that's a, a great question with a really big answer. Uh, my my personal story is that I was actually out on a U.S. Navy ship doing a recovery exercise at sea with the Orion spacecraft, uh, and uh, a few of the sailors from the base that we disembarked from had actually tested positive, and so we had to come in early, and I came back to a very different NASA uh, in uh, about mid-March or so. We've been on an agency-wide telework status, with the exception of certain critical people that have to go man up mission control or training or whatnot. And so it's added a, a new and very unexpected twist to everything we normally do face to face. Uh, and we've been on a very steep learning curve because of that. And, um, you know, I would say that like everybody, we're, we're at a time in history where we're uniquely tooled to do this. I mean, everybody's got internet connectivity and the ability to telework at home is something that NASA had built up pretty robustly beforehand. We just never expected to test it uh, on an agency-wide basis like this. And so everything we normally do in lead up to a normal rocket launch, let alone a brand new vehicle for a test flight, we, we've had to do remotely in uh, virtual meetings where we may have anywhere between two and 125 souls online trying to talk to one another in an orderly fashion. So we, we've all had to learn new habits, but, but we've also been challenged by making the same engineering and safety milestones that we would have to do. Uh, it's not easy. I mean, we're, we're used to um, looking each other in the eye and, and reading each other when we're making decisions that have very high stakes consequences. 
And I, I think it's a truism that NASA is just very much a family uh, environment. And so when the family can't get together, that, uh, that adds a new dynamic to things. I think a lot of us just plain miss each other. Do you, um, and do you think it's going to change the way in which NASA works in, in the future? I think, again, we had already built a pretty robust telework capability. Uh, and, and there were certainly a few people who weren't really comfortable with that. I would say that we've expanded that comfort zone considerably. Uh, and that in the future, probably as people can work from home, many will continue to do so for certain things. Um, but we're, we're like a reservoir filling up. Uh, and, and we really have certain things we put on hold because of uh, the lack of being able to work in proximity. That's hardware development, a lot of crew training, some of the science payloads that we're trying to work on. And so as soon as the, the relief comes, that, that dam is gonna burst and there's a, a lot of us are gonna have to go flooding back to resume some of the work that we have put on hold. And in particular, I've, I've got some hardware that I'm very keen to get up on the station later this year, but uh, really requires some hands-on work with, it, uh, with, with small teams. So yes, I would say that um, we will have a lot more telework in the future than we've had. Um, but uh, I, I think a lot of us can't wait to get back and get our hands on the hardware. And Mike, you mentioned the, 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 the almost family atmosphere that's at NASA. Now you're, and you're sending two of your family members for the first time since the, uh, the closure of the shuttle program from American soil up to the International Space Station. Now, how does that, how does that, make, you, how does that make you feel? Well, it makes me, uh, makes me feel many different things on many different levels. Uh, first of all, just historically, it's great to be launching from American soil. You know, rocket launches are all about power and smoke and fire and, and uh, the excitement that goes along with that, the exploration that goes along with that. And we've missed that. There's no question about it. So being able to, to launch from our own soil is a big thing. Our Russian colleagues have been excellent partners throughout all of this. And we'll continue to work with them, but uh, we definitely want indigenous capability. And for the international community, it's important to have multiple ways to get people to the space station as well. It, it really adds a, a safety net to, to running a big international platform. From a human standpoint, um, you know, as, as I mentioned, I've put a lot of heart and soul into this spacecraft, like many of us have. Uh, and so there's a big personal investment, uh, both from the work that I've done individually and the relationship we have with our SpaceX counterparts to see this succeed. Uh, but on a much more personal level, the, the two astronauts that are launching, uh, Doug Hurley, Bob Bankett, are also my classmates. Uh, we were in the class of 2020, or about 2000 rather, together, the Millennium Bugs, as it were. Uh, and I should note that both of these are married to others of my classmates. So you have two astronauts married to astronauts, all of which are in the class of 2020. And, and we were a pretty close-knit group. So uh, I'm thinking a lot about Bob and Doug and, and their families as they go up here too. So on many levels, we, we have a very heavy investment into this launch. And it's a different launch to the one that you expected, or indeed the astronauts themselves expected. You know, it's taken years for them to build up to this moment, has, as it has you, yourself and also NASA as an organization and SpaceX. Um, but people aren't going to be able to watch this momentous occasion from the ground, are they? They're going to have to watch it um, online and virtually. Yes, in general, we've <clears throat> always invited big crowds for everybody to participate in, in these launches as much as possible. And you can 
fit many tens of thousands of people down in some of the areas at uh, the Kennedy Space Center. The, the good news about a rocket launch is that no matter what, you can see it from a long way. So I guarantee you probably many hundreds of thousands of people that live down in that area or manage to travel close enough will be able to see it. But it certainly won't be quite the same festive atmosphere that we've had in the past. We expect that to come back at some point, but that, that is yet another aspect. I'll point out, though, that this is actually the second human launch that we've had during this COVID era. The, uh, the first was last month when we launched a crew on the Russian Soyuz out of Baikonur in, in Kazakhstan. And that was also extremely tightly controlled in efforts to protect the crew and, of course, to protect the space station from COVID. So no crew family members, for instance, were able to go and the friends and other close acquaintances that are normally there. We, we've already had to experience this once with our Russian colleagues. <clears throat> and of course, that la- uh, launched our U.S. astronaut, Chris Cassidy, up there uh, with his Russian colleagues. And so this is the second time. And um, we're hoping for things to get back to normal, but uh, we will adjust accordingly to protect our crew. You're, so you're launching into a very different um launching with a very different vehicle to the one that you you're used to launching with your russian partners have you how how's the medical aspect and the medical preparation of of your job changed as a result of that well the medical preparation hasn't changed that much because uh basically the the um spacex dragon is very much like the soyuz in that its main job is to carry a small crew and a certain amount of hardware and personal effects and payloads up to the space station. And the Soyuz can do that in anywhere between six hours and 48 hours. And it's a very similar timeline with the Dragon. If, if things go well, Bob and Doug will spend only about 19 hours in that spacecraft before they, they get to the station. So the main focus of our training is very much generic to what we would normally do to prepare people for the International Space Station flights, which is not trivial. You know, they're, they're going to be up in weightlessness for, for quite a while. And there's a certain amount of deconditioning that goes with that, as is well known. So there's a lot of physical and medical preparation that goes with just being on station. They will have done pretty rigorous physical training and trained on all the countermeasures hardware that's up there and the medical exams, which you do pre-flight and in-flight uh, and getting ready for their uh, post-flight return. So that's very similar. One of the big differences, though, is uh, actually comes at the end of the mission because we are dropping Bob and Doug into the ocean. And we haven't done that since the Apollo era. Nobody has. And uh, the longest mission we ever did was Skylab. And that was 83 days before dropping a crew in the ocean. So at that point, you're, you're sort of into your deeply deconditioned phase. And Bob and Doug could spend anywhere between 30 and 100 days up there. That's yet to be determined. Uh, but but uh, they won't be landing on solid ground like the Soyuz did, and they won't be landing on a runway like the shuttle did. They'll be bobbing in the ocean. And I, I think it's a truism that the Soyuz makes a great spaceship. Um, it can land in the water as a backup capability. It's not nearly as good of a boat as it is a spaceship. And uh, I think the Dragon is, is somewhat the same, although it's designed to purpose to land in the water. And so uh, as it is, when you land on firm ground after being in space and deconditioned with your balance system, it's challenging to be back in gravity. And this will add another level of challenge because you'll add a provocative wave state to go with that. And then a recovery operation, which I've been somewhat involved in as well and been out on the recovery ships for that as well. 
So uh, that, that's kind of a new twist that, uh, that we're all sort of getting ready for. It's going to make for some historic images that are going to look remarkably similar to some of the, you know, some of those Apollo images that we grew, grew up with, with the astronauts being rescued from the sea. It's going to be it's going to be amazing to see. I think so. I think they've got a great system. The, uh, the ship that is designed to recover them, there's two of them, the Go Searcher and the Go Navigator. I believe the Go, uh, Go Navigator is on deck to, uh, to pick up these guys, but uh, they should be able to be standing in close proximity to the capsule when it eventually lands. And they will basically winch this thing and uh, crane it aboard and plop it on a deck and be able to recover them in a fairly orderly fashion. Uh, but uh, this is hopefully, this is, uh, I should say, thankfully been done before with their cargo version of this many times. And so there, uh, there is a salty crew that is very experienced at recovering Dragon capsules already. And uh, we did do a full-up test, an end-to-end -end test of an unmanned version of the Crew Dragon already. And uh, that actually went extremely well. So uh, we anticipate that these guys are going to be pretty well and pretty handily recovered. And I'm kind of imagining, you know, I'm from speaking to you before and also obviously seeing um, some replicas of the Soros spacecraft is quite basic. Now, I'm kind of imagining with the Dragon capsule, it's going to be leather, it's going to be comfortable, it's going to be very plush accommodation on the way up to the International Space Station. Is that just my fanciful thinking or is that the case? Well, it's always a basis of comparison, isn't it? So uh, it's, it's quite a bit larger and roomier than the Soyuz, uh, which is great. It's a very modern spacecraft. The Soyuz was designed in the late 60s, um, and we still use the basic design because it works quite well. Uh, the shuttle was designed in the late 70s, and, uh, well, this one is designed in the last few years, and it shows. It, it's a very modern um, you know, when you uh, when you stick your head in that thing, it's just the impression is, yeah, it's a new car smell here. It's it's a brand new contemporary spaceship. Yeah, you know, we we actually use that uh, euphemism, but but it smells like a spacecraft. Uh, there's no question about it. It's kind of uh, now I haven't poked my nose in in their spacecraft for a long time, but uh, it's it's kind of a characteristic um, aroma, if you will, that. Kind of reflects the materials that we have to use for spacecraft: low flammability, insulation, wiring, panels, synthetic materials. Uh, I mean, it, it's just a very, very modern spaceship, and it, and it looks and feels like it. So it's very bright inside. The uh, spacecraft human factors design team on the SpaceX side, I think, has just done an outstanding job integrating everything. So there's a, a certain functionality and aesthetic to it, a kind of a space feng shui, if you will, that's, that's really quite well done. And given the, um, the, the pedigree of the, the designers, does it park better than the Soyuz? Does it park better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, that, that will come with time. The, the Soyuz is an amazing spacecraft to fly. And uh, it, it can do, do so in either automatic or manual mode. On my flight, we actually had to dock it manually. Uh, and it, it flies superbly. It's, it's almost like a little sports car. So uh, we'll see. We're, uh, we have high hopes for the SpaceX, but that's a, a track record that has to be earned. Uh, I, again, I, I have full confidence and, and high hopes for the Dragon as well. And Mike, I've got some questions from the, from the internet, from people, various people that posted questions. So, um, what are the G-forces in the access for the launch and the launch abort, uh, I think for the Dragon 
capsule. This is from a guy called Chris Liu, who you might have met in the in the past. All right. Uh, well, I have to speak a little bit generically, partly because those those loads change uh, depending on where things happen and and the flight dynamics. Uh, but we will expect launch loads when you're lying on your back and, and shooting straight up and you're, of course, fresh as a daisy and non-deconditioned. Uh, those will be in the, in the neighborhood from maybe two up to three and a half, maybe peaking a little above four Gs. So you're not staying at those levels for, for a huge amount of time. Uh, but you will, for a certain amount of time, feel about four times heavier than, than you normally would. That's accompanied by a little bit of vibration as you go up. And uh, we still expect about eight minutes, eight and a half minutes or so from the time that you leave the pad to the time that you attain your orbital velocity, which is about 17,500 miles an hour, uh, eight kilometers per second uh, or so, and then the engine's cut off and, and you're coasting. And uh, those are very much in family with the Soyuz or, or with the shuttle G-forces as well. So really about the same amount of time to build the same velocity to get you there. Um, things start to differ a little bit from the shuttle, certainly for entry. When you're coming home, the shuttle had a very low G state. So it was maybe 1, 1.2, 1.5 Gs for a longer period of time, up to 17, 20 minutes. Uh, whereas the Dragon will peak up at about four and a half Gs or so. But it's a peak. It, uh, it will kind of build up to that as you're dissipating all that velocity and then come down again. But at that point, you'll be spaceflight deconditioned. You will have not felt any physical load for months. Uh, and I can tell you that 4Gs feels like 10. <laughs> so, uh, but then, uh, then they'll just come down very gently on parachutes and then uh, hit the ocean. Um, of the, what is the atmosphere? This again is from Chris Lou. What's the atmosphere of the, the crew capsule and the re-entry suit? Well, the, the crew capsule is kept at sea level. It's 14.7 pounds per square inch, roughly 80-20 nitrogen oxygen. So it's exactly the same as we keep the station and, and very much like uh, atmospheric uh, air. Uh, the suit, we, we have people in their suits and visors down, but mostly they'll be breathing the cabin air that's circulated, and that helps keep the suit cool. It's normal pressure. Now, if we develop a problem, a leak or a fire or a toxic atmosphere, then the suits can be sealed off. So they'll immediately go to a tanked gas supply so that it protects the crew members, exactly as we do in the Soyuz, actually. Um, and then uh, you could lose pressure in the vehicle, but you'd still be able to bring it home in your, your suited pressure refuge. So it's a quite elegant system. And another question from um, Ben Abbott. Um, are there any, with regards to this particular mission and, 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 the, and the future, are there any particular medical um, testing that's going on and experiments with a view to long duration space flights so that, that are beginning, being put into position now? Right, so it's a good question. Not so much with this flight. This flight is very much a test flight, a demonstration flight of the Crew Dragon. So this will be the first time we've had crew members on this spacecraft ever. So really the focus is on the hardware and the performance of this spaceship. And that's everything from launch to free flight docking. We'll be doing flight tests, control tests, uh, rendezvous proximity operations, as we call them, and docking, as I mentioned, and, and just making sure it behaves in an orderly fashion. Now, the crew, once they get up there, will be subject to the same type of medical monitoring as we do for all long-duration people. 
Um, but uh, once this spacecraft is, is proofed and certified, the next cruise, we will do uh, medical experiments on very similar to what we do for all of the ISS crew members. And the idea being then that um, a, a foothold will be established on the moon. Eventually, sure. So uh, that's a big picture thing for us <laughs> now. I, you know what uh, NASA wants to be in the business of exploration and really expanding our envelope. And one of the ways we enable that is to try to help commercialization along. And that helps us to build infrastructure that's useful to us, but it also helps private enterprise like uh, SpaceX and Boeing and Blue Origin to develop their capabilities and then eventually service other customers. Now, right now, you know, we are the market in low Earth orbit. There's no other place to go to. But having new spacecraft that are capable of safely getting people to low Earth orbit will incentivize other platforms, other low Earth orbit space stations, whether they're commercial, academic, touristy, you know, however you like. And that will free up NASA to go off and do other things. But it also stimulates the growth and uh, research and development in these commercial companies to help us go further. So yeah, we would like to go back to the moon. Um, and uh, interestingly, SpaceX is one of the bidders on a, a lunar landing system that uh, potentially could get us there. And we're, we're in this period now of, of vetting that, uh, along with Blue Origin and uh, Dynetics and other consortium. So yeah, absolutely. This is, is very enabling of NASA's vision for getting back to the moon and in a more permanent fashion and then stepping stone to Mars. Now, to be sure, that's going to be an international model similar to what we've built with the International Space Station program as well. There's a question from Luke, and what are the, um, and actually it's a great question from, the, from Instagram. What are the, the most important differences between, in terms of crew survivability and crew, um, safety in the Dragon capsule compared to the Soyuz, which was built many years ago? Well, the Soyuz was built many years ago, but it has been continually upgraded. And the systems and the system redundancies in the Soyuz are, are nearly matchless, to be honest. Um, the, the Soyuz absolutely has the, the track record of the most reliable and safe vehicle to get people to and from lower Earth orbit in history. And it, it will be a while before anything could possibly surpass that, just because uh, you, you find things over time. Uh, you, you can't design a perfect spacecraft right out of the blocks and it'll remain perfect forever. Uh, now, having said that, when you are building a new spacecraft many years into spaceflight, you can capitalize on those experiences as well. And so we've learned lessons flying the shuttle and the Soyuz, and those have definitely been incorporated into the, the SpaceX Dragon and, and the Boeing uh, Starliner, partly because NASA baked them into the requirements that we handed to both of these vendors. Uh, so there are a lot of safety aspects of, of the Dragon that are heritage that, that we know from spaceflight experience need to be in there. So we have pretty full confidence in the Dragon. It's going to be different. It's, it's going to have some physical challenges, there's no question. Um, but mainly what we're looking for now is the systems that keep the crew alive to work. Um, and we think they will. Do you, is there, um, I mean, clearly with a number of different platforms being able to lift to the ISS now, it gives redundancy for both the, for, for Russia and for the US and for the European Space Agency and other agencies. Could you see an occasion where um, an American rocket might be taking cosmonauts to the International Space Station? 
Well, that's a great question. You know, uh, when we had the shuttle going, we actually flew cosmonauts on some shuttle missions while we were flying uh, U.S. astronauts on the Soyuz. We expect to do the same thing again. Again, it gives you a redundancy that if there's an interruption in launch services on either side and one accident or one technical glitch or discovery could cause you to ground your fleet, but you still want your own people to get there. So we absolutely will be training and flying Russian cosmonauts on the new commercial vehicles and most likely continue to fly U.S. astronauts on the Soyuz just to be sure we have that cross capability. It's, a, it's an amazing historic moment. Is there a palpable difference in the level of excitement at NASA compared to normal um, launches? Well, it's interesting. Uh, probably the biggest damper on that excitement is, is the pandemic. Yeah. You know, we, we, would, we would all be together right now because people are working really hard and you want to kind of commiserate as much as possible and share thoughts and ideas. And that's just so much harder to do uh, remotely. Um, but just the idea that we're launching from, from U.S. soil is a really big thing. And, you know, partly because it's, it's, exciting, it's very exciting, it's the right thing to do. We've waited for this a long time. But partly because, you know, we haven't done this for nine years. We, we have new skids to grease. It's a different rocket ship. It's a different process. There's other bodies involved. And um, so having to do that as well, it's, it's a little bit um, uh, frenetic in a way, in a very orderly fashion, but, but we're having to go in directions that we weren't before. And to be very honest, it, it's a brand new spaceship carrying people for the first time. And spaceflight is not without a certain amount of risk. And so, you know, we, we have uh, very, I think, strong safeguards and we've calculated those risks to the extent we can, uh, but it's not lost on anybody that, you know, that it is a brand new vehicle. And, and you find things with repeated use that you will never find in computer simulations or probabilistic risk assessments. So like every spacecraft in history, this one will talk to us and it will tell us things that we didn't anticipate. Uh, and by far the vast majority of those are gonna be very benign and, and um, uh, very interesting. Some of them might be a little bit more nerve wracking, which is why we've baked in a lot of safety systems to the Dragon. So there's a little bit of anticipation, no question about it. And are you looking forward to flying in the Dragon yourself? Well, uh, if I, I don't control the flight assignments, if you want to write a letter to the, the office, I'd appreciate that. Be but I would. <laughs> no, I'm still flight eligible. And uh, boy, any, almost any ride to space you could think of, I'd probably hop on. It's, you know, it, it's a massively historic moment, Mike. And it, and it sort of um, w welcomes in a new era of space travel and space exploration. Um, and we're really appreciative, and I know the people listening to will be also for you giving us the time today because we know how frenetic and how you know busy you are. So we really appreciate you you spending the time with us today. Now and we look no forward to oh, we wish you great success with the mission, and we look forward to hearing all about it post mission when you've got a little bit more time and you're coming down on the other side. All right, true. Well, uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk, and obviously. Uh, it's, it's really big for us, and uh, I love talking about it when I do get the chance and sharing the adventure. So um, we're, uh, we're ready, and uh, we're fingers crossed, but mostly we're ready. And uh, I think that's the best we can do as we go into this. Well, good luck with the launch, Mike, and, and thank you once again for, for, for giving us the time. Thank you. My pleasure.